Things are not always what they appear to be. Some time ago, a man called Stevie Smith wrote uh, quite a famous poem called Not Waving, But Drowning. It describes how a man's friends thought he was waving to them from out in the water, when really he was badly in need of their help. He was drowning. Those friends misinterpreted what they saw. And the passage we're going to look at this evening records several incidents that could easily be misinterpreted. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7. If you're using the church Bible, it's page 1010, and in the large print, 1568. And in just a moment, we're going to read from chapter 7, verse 24, through to chapter 8, verse 13. But before we read this passage, remember that in the section we looked at last week, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were questioning Jesus' loyalty to Judaism. They pointed to the fact that Jesus' disciples didn't live according to the tradition of the elders. And Steve explained what that meant. It meant they didn't keep the extra regulations the Jews had added on to God's law. And in response to these Jewish leaders, Jesus did two things. He first of all condemned the Pharisees for vain worship and hypocrisy. And then he declared all foods to be clean. In other words, he set aside the eating regulations of the Old Testament law. And Steve pointed out last week what a radical step that was. And in our passage this evening, Jesus takes another radical step. In the face of opposition from the Pharisees, Jesus takes off. And he goes to people who do not have the law. Gentiles. People who the Jews referred to as dogs. Apart from the last few verses, our whole passage deals with Jesus' time among these Gentiles. So we'll pick up at chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. 
There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on them. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spat and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosed and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. This is God's word. Chapter 7 began in Galilee. But verse 24 tells us that after his run-in with the Pharisees in Galilee, Jesus headed off to the vicinity of Tyre. That's just outside of Israel. And it appears that Jesus goes there to get some peace. But then a Greek woman discovers that he's there. Apparently she's heard at least some reports about Jesus. And she comes asking him to drive a demon out of her daughter. Now this is something we have seen Jesus doing among the Jews since chapter 1. But look again what he says to this Gentile woman in verse 27. First, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. This appears to be a harsh word from Jesus. Josephus was a Jewish historian who lived around the same time as Jesus. 
And he described the people of Tyre as our bitterest enemies. And here Jesus seems to be taking the same approach. Certainly what he says expresses the standard Jewish view of things. They, the Jews, were God's children, and the Gentiles were the dogs. But I think there's something else going on here. Remember, just before he came here, Jesus declared all foods to be clean. That was a massive step in breaking down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. And then he heads to Tyre, home of the Jews' bitterest enemies. And he just happens to be found there by not only a Gentile, but a female Gentile who had a daughter with an impure spirit. One commentator says, In the ancient Jewish world, this was a combination of need beneath the dignity of any true rabbi. So what a coincidence that after abolishing Jewish food laws, Jesus straight away goes to the most dog-like dogs of all. He ends up talking to one of the most dog-like dogs of all, as far as the Jews saw it at least. But actually, I'm quite sure this is no coincidence at all. We know that Jesus did not wander around aimlessly. Everything Jesus did had a purpose. And when we understand that Jesus has gone out of his way to cross paths with this woman, we're given a clue to what's going on in verse 27. Obviously, the words on the page don't convey the tone of Jesus' voice here. But I don't believe his tone is harsh. He's saying to this lady, I'm a Jew, you know. You know what Jews normally think of Gentiles like you, don't you? I think Jesus is prompting the lady to push him a little bit further. He's giving her an opportunity to show her faith in him. And certainly that's how the lady herself takes these words. Instead of backing off like she's just been rebuked, the lady keeps going like she's just been given encouragement. Verse 28, Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. The outcome of this shows us how we're to interpret the whole incident. And the outcome is entirely positive. Just after declaring all foods clean, here Jesus opens the way for Gentile dogs to share the children's bread. By the end of this meeting, the lady and her daughter have received the same blessing from God as the Jews have been getting. I think the lesson is that sometimes God challenges us. He brings something into our lives to encourage us to trust him, to prove his willingness to provide for us. 
He says to us, how much do you really think of my power? How much confidence do you really have in my love? Sometimes we think God is being harsh with us. We ask, why is God doing this? Maybe the answer is, he's encouraging me to lean more on him. And when I do, he'll show me more of himself. So let's never be too quick to assume God is being harsh with us. He's a father who loves to give good gifts to his children. So when things seem to be blocking our path, let's assume God is with us, not against us. Let's assume he has something good for us if we'll press on to receive it. Well, Jesus is not done with this trip to the Gentiles. In verse 31, we're told, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. So now Jesus moves over here. Decapolis means ten cities. And it turns out this is also a Gentile area. And what follows appears to be a strange healing. Look down to verse 32. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spat And touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosed and he began to speak plainly. Jesus doesn't seem to have done things this way among the Jews. Later on, he will do something similar in a Jewish area. But previously among the Jews, he seems to have healed with a simple word or a touch of the hand. So why among the Gentiles does Jesus do this routine that seems a bit odd? The best explanation seems to be that Jesus is making clear to the man this is not magic at work. It's God's power. Certainly Jesus didn't need to touch the man The healing actually happens with just a word of command from Jesus. Be opened. So what's all the rest of this for? Well, the man can't hear, so Jesus uses a kind of sign language. Touching his ear means, I'm going to unblock your ears. Spitting on his fingers and touching the man's tongue means, I'm going to loosen your tongue. And looking up to heaven says, The healing power you are about to experience comes from God. So what might have looked like strange behavior was actually a concern to communicate clearly with this man. And there is no doubt about Jesus' genuine concern here. Verse 34 says he sighed deeply. 
Healing people was never just a routine for Jesus. He really cared. And his sigh here has been described as the sigh of the heart of God for his needy creation. The book of Isaiah had prophesied a day when creation would be renewed. Isaiah said a time would come when the eyes of the blind would be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the mute tongue would shout for joy. What Jesus does here might have looked strange, but he's giving these Gentiles a foretaste of what Isaiah spoke about. They're experiencing the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises. And their reaction comes in verse 37. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. Later on in Isaiah, God said to Israel, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Plenty of what God does in our lives is going to seem strange to us. But he knows what he's doing. And in the end, we will look back and say, he has done everything well. Strange as it might have looked at the time. Well, back in chapter 6, while Jesus was still among the Jews... He fed a large crowd in a remote place. And we were told on that occasion that just the number of men present was 5,000. Now, though, Jesus is among the Gentiles. And remember how this trip started. Jesus questioned whether it was right for the dogs to have the children's bread. And the woman said, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And we saw that woman wasn't looking for literal bread from Jesus. What she wanted was a share in the blessings of God's Messiah. In her case, the crumb she wanted was for her daughter to be healed. But now we have a more literal issue about bread. In chapter 6, we saw the Jews get plenty of bread from Jesus. Here the question is, Does he have any for the Gentiles? The disciples don't seem to think so. They have seen Jesus feed that previous crowd, but they seem to doubt that he can do it for the Gentiles. In chapter 8, verse 2, Jesus says to them, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. But look how the disciples answer him in verse 4. But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Why are they asking this? Have they already forgotten the feeding of the 5,000? And wasn't that in a remote place too? Well, no, of course they haven't forgotten. And yes, it was in a remote place. 
but it was in Israel. And the disciples seemed to think this Gentile place is just too remote. They seemed to think Jesus' power is limited to Israel. But in terms of Jesus' power, we have to ask, is this really a remote place? The answer is not at all. What follows in chapter 8 is basically a repeat of what Jesus did among the Jews. He gives thanks for the small amount of food that's available. He gives it to the disciples to distribute. And verse 8 tells us the people ate and were satisfied with basketfuls left over. And the point is, Jesus is able to bless and provide even in the most remote place. Even in what might appear to be the most God-forsaken place. When Steve spoke about the feeding of the 5,000, he called it the Feast of King Jesus. And now we know the Feast of King Jesus is open to all. Whatever their background wherever they are. Those who were viewed as dogs under the table, they haven't been given just a few crumbs by Jesus. They've been given a place at the table. And then they've been filled to the brim. These Gentiles are learning that God can satisfy them too. In fact, he's eager to satisfy them. And he can do the same for the people around us. I think if we're honest, probably all of us have our doubts about that at times. We wonder if what we're offering people can really help them. We know that Jesus calls himself the bread of life, but don't we wonder sometimes if he can do the trick for spiritually lost and hungry people? The New Testament says, yes, he can. It tells us what Jesus has is not just for the few who have religious tendencies. What Jesus has is also for those who seem to be furthest away from God and maybe least interested in him. It's for prisoners. It's for politicians and hairdressers and businessmen, and everybody else. Don't assume that your family or your workplace is beyond the reach of Jesus. Jesus can satisfy even the people who go around pretending they are satisfied and that they don't need anything. We can't assume anyone is beyond Jesus' reach. It might appear that way sometimes, but it's not true. What is true, however, is that God's patience is not endless. Look at verse 10 of chapter 8. Here Mark tells us that after the feeding of the 4,000... He got into the boat with his disciples 
and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. So after feeding the 4,000, Jesus travels back into Galilee. And immediately the Pharisees arrive and they're on his case again, demanding to see his credentials again. As if Jesus hasn't shown them enough already. But Mark makes it clear their motivation is to test him. They're not open to being convinced about Jesus. And notice that in response, Jesus sighs deeply. It's the second time he's done that in our passage. First, over the state of the deaf and dumb man. And now, over the hardened unbelief of these Pharisees. And he refuses to give these hard-hearted people the sign they're demanding. And what happens is that from now on, Jesus' focus changes. Verse 13 says he left them. That doesn't just mean he climbed into the boat. From now on, Jesus focuses more and more on the small group of his committed disciples. He spends less and less time dealing with the Pharisees. As we think about this passage as a whole, we can thank God that everyone's invited to his feast. But as we thank him, let's not presume on his mercy. Because if we continue to reject him, one day the door will be closed to us. And as we share this good news with others, let's make it clear to them that they do need to respond to it. In just a moment, we're going to close with two songs. And the first of these two songs reminds us that we are invited to Jesus' feast. It's a joyful invitation. But then the second song gives us an opportunity to respond to his invitation. So we're going to sing, first of all, the trumpets sound, the angels sing. And then we'll sing, above the voices of the world around me. And I realize this first song may be quite unfamiliar. We have sung it before, but I'm not assuming that you'll remember it. So the musicians will play, I think, the first two verses in the chorus for us. And then we'll go back to the start and we'll join in and sing both of these songs. <laughs> 